Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, November the 16th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Reports from this week's meeting of the G20 group of the world's largest economies in Bali suggest that a reset of some sort may be in prospect for relationships between the two global superpowers, China and the United States. This comes after several years now of deteriorating relations between the two and escalating tensions over issues such as the status of Taiwan. I'm delighted to be joined today by our Beijing correspondent, Dennis Staunton. Dennis, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Hugh. It's about time we got you on because everybody's always singing your praises on your Beijing letters over the last few weeks. So I thought it's about time we got Dennis in person to get a sense of, of his perspective very timely appointment, I think, that you've gone to Beijing. It's, there's a lot of news uh, there at the moment. There's a lot going on. And I think uh, also, I think from an Irish point of view and an Irish Times point of view, it's good to have our own perspective on it because for all the obvious reasons that we have foreign correspondence, we, we have a distinct foreign policy outlook in Ireland and we're not part of NATO. We are part of the European Union. We have a, a, a foreign policy outlook that's informed by our history. Uh, which is as a former colony and, uh, and our, our position. And so, so I think in a way, uh, it is important and it's useful to have somebody here, uh, as we have had obviously over the last 20 years. And, uh, and so anyway, I'm very happy to be here at this time. And for you personally, I mean, you've been a, you've been a foreign correspondent in, in Berlin, in Brussels, in Washington and, and in London, all Western democracies. And there's a certain way of going about the job there, I think. You- kind of take the temperature of the society, you talk to key people, and you you assemble a picture for our readers of what's going on. China is a very different type of a society. Does one Is the modus operandi different there? In some ways, it's the same. So, for example, uh, there's a foreign ministry press briefing every day. I was there this afternoon. And just like you have in Brussels every day, you have lobby briefings in London, you've got the White House press briefing in Washington. And so in a sense, the, uh, you know, the kind of the architecture of the uh, reporter's day is quite similar. Where it's different is to do with access. And, uh, and so you really, it's very, very difficult to get uh, any kind of direct access to the people who are making decisions. And some of the very key people just would never speak to any foreign journalist at all. Uh, many of them don't. But even just on, uh, you know, if you want to talk to people who are fairly peripheral and so are not really kind of key decision makers, there is a certain hesitancy. There's a, a kind of a reticence about talking to the foreign press. And so, for example, I was having lunch today with uh, somebody from one of the big companies here, a big tech company. And she was saying, if you wanted to do an interview, would, you, would a written interview be okay? Would you like to do a kind of a live interview? And I said, I prefer a live interview, really. And she said, yeah, that's just a little more complicated. You know, and, and, it's, and it's simply because uh, people just aren't sure. Now, I think to some extent, 
uh, you know, a number of things have happened at the same time. One is that the atmosphere in China over the last few years has become more inward-looking, more restrictive. There was a kind of an opening up uh, big time sort of, you know, 20 years ago and for a period after that. And things, you know, over the last uh, 10 years or so have been more restrictive. So that's certainly one factor. And the other factor partly connected with that is that Western reporting on China has tended to be more hostile. And so, uh, you know, uh, people uh, here in China are more wary of talking to Western journalists because they think it's going to maybe be uh, pushed through a kind of a prism of, uh, you know, which is kind of hostile. And, uh, you know, and so, so that's, you know, so there's, there's a kind of a mistrust there. But I think that, in, you know, on the other hand, some of the other things do remain in that what often you're trying to do is to get a sense of what life is like and to get a sense of what uh, what the people are like and what life is like for ordinary people. And that, again, I suppose, in, in some ways is more important in a country like China because uh, it's so unfamiliar to Irish readers and also partly because of the heightened uh, geopolitical tensions. It's important to remember that the Chinese people are people and that uh, they're not some kind of monolith and that uh, the fact that they live under a different system doesn't mean that they think or feel uh, or behave all that differently in fundamental ways to anyone else. Before we move on to the actual, the high politics, this is a question that I really could launch a thousand podcasts, so uh, feel free to give it answer in a truncated way. What is your initial sense of, of China, of the society? You know it's had... This this incredible um, transformation over the course of just a couple of decades uh, in terms of uh, in terms of wealth, um, prosperity, industrialization, urbanization. Um, does it does it feel like a society that's been through a, you know a, a huge change in the very recent past? It does feel that, and everything. There's a sense of things being new. In some ways, that's familiar coming from Ireland, because in a way, we're also a society that uh, that transformed itself, uh, was transformed, uh, you know, very dramatically over the last say uh, forty years or so. Uh, and uh, you know, it's obviously not on the same kind of scale in, in terms of the things you're talking about. But nonetheless, one of the common features is that you don't tend to find that much nostalgia in Ireland. It's one of the uh, the good things, probably politically, uh, because what are you going to get nostalgic about that the or the poverty, you know, and in the same way, in China, you find very few people who are nostalgic for the old days. And so there is a kind of a sense of optimism. It reminds me in some ways of America in that sense, of this, there's a kind of a can-do attitude. Uh, it's obviously dampened to some extent by the ongoing COVID restrictions. People are getting a bit tired of those. It just seems to be going on for so for such a long time. One of the things, though, that struck me, I mean, I'm such... Um, uh, at such a, a venerable stage now that I lived in Berlin when I was divided. I lived in West Berlin when uh, East Berlin was under communism. And I spent a lot of time in East Germany and in East Berlin in particular. And uh, life under communism in the Eastern Bloc felt very restrictive. You felt a sense of menace and a sense of being watched all the time. Now, here in China, the electronic surveillance is, by all accounts, complete and total. The sense of life, even as you just come into the airport, there is a much less oppressive sense than I would have expected somehow. That, and so in a way, in the way that people talk to you, in the way that you, know, if you meet people and that you just talk about things about life, they're not, you know, uh, while I don't tend to necessarily to get into conversations about what they think politically, nonetheless, you, I don't get the feeling that people are feeling hugely constrained in a way that they definitely 
were looking over their shoulders all those years ago in East Germany. So I think in a sense, there's no question but that it is uh, uh, an autocratic uh, system and you don't really want to get on the wrong side of the authorities. But nonetheless, there is a different kind of an atmosphere. And it's an, and that is, is one of the things that surprised me. Is that partly because the Chinese way has developed over the last three decades offers the benefits of capitalism and consumerism in a way in which the grim East Berlin of the 1980s never did? I think so. I think I'm also, by the way, very conscious of the fact that I'm very new here. So a lot of the things that I say now are very much first impressions. They're rooted in kind of ignorance and uh, wide-eyed wonder in a sense. But I think it's also actually to do with cultural things, that uh, that the, the Chinese way is not to be as brutal as, for example, the Russians might be in terms of their approach to things. It's more subtle. It tends to wish to persuade and to bring people on board. There's this whole concept of harmony going back to thousands of years is something that's at, at the center of uh, Chinese culture. And so that's uh, something which I think is also one of the reasons why it feels uh, in an ordinary day-to-day basis a little bit gentler. Uh, having said that, I'm sure it's not gentle for the people who uh, who really come up against it. Well, indeed. And and you mentioned the, the COVID policy, which is very different from the policy pursued by, by other countries around the world. And looking at it from outside and some of the media coverage of it, it looks sometimes like as if Xi Jinping's policy there has been become this sort of cul-de-sac from which it is very difficult to escape at this point. And you talk about those pressures. I, I saw some uh, I saw some coverage, I think, of disturbances in some Chinese cities over lockdowns in reaction to lockdowns. How does the the regime get out of that at this stage? Well, they published uh, last week, they published this 20-point plan, which uh, now they said it's not in any sense the end of the zero COVID policy is just optimizing it. But there are a number of things which are to do with uh, kind of uh, shortening the time you spend in quarantine if you come back, certain kinds of easements, and there's supposed to be, uh, you know, less testing. You've got to get tested every three days. In fact, as it turns out here in Beijing, there's more testing going on because there's been a bit of a surge in cases. But the most important things I thought that I saw in that plan was that it included various measures, which are the measures they'd have to take if they want to get out of this business. And one is increasing the vaccination. One of the things that happened here is that vaccination wasn't made mandatory. And the people who have been most resistant to getting vaccinated are the older people, the very people who need them. So they need to do some more targeting in terms of getting booster shots to older people. And there's a plan for doing that. And also possibly there's the sign of them getting perhaps doing a deal with BioNTech to get their vaccine in here. Then there's also uh, the question of the resilience of the healthcare system. If you get ill, if you get a cold here in China, Somebody's going to say to you, go to, you better go to the hospital. Uh, like if, if people get ill, they go to the hospital. That's what happens. And so it's very easy for the hospital to get overwhelmed. And so one of the things they're trying to do it's in this plan is to kind of create more capacity for, say, ICU beds and just for, for all of that, but also then to have more treatments outside hospital, drug treatments for people who do get COVID. So in a way, it looks like they're putting in place the things that they would have to do to get out of it. But if they do start doing that now, it's going to be kind of March or April by the time uh, you actually can get out of it. And as chance would have it, that's when the National Assembly will meet. And so that's a decision-making body. So it's very possible that what we're seeing now is the start of the process of getting out. But in between now and then, we have the winter. And right now, here in Beijing, everybody I talk to either knows somebody or they themselves have been locked down in their 
uh, in wherever they live, sometimes just for a day or so, sometimes less than a day, sometimes for, for a week. And so you are getting, uh, so it doesn't feel like the policy is easing when you're right here right now. But that's the plan. So with impeccable timing, you arrived in Beijing just as the as the Party Congress was taking place, which confirmed that Xi Jinping would would serve uh, another another term, establishing his position as the most powerful Chinese leader since the nineteen seventies. Probably, I think it's I think it's fair to say. What does that mean for for China as a whole? I mean, what direction? I mean, you mentioned earlier that the country has become more authoritarian over the last few years. Can we expect that trajectory to, to continue? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, like one of the, the the one of the things that Xi Jinping uh, wanted to do as soon as he got into uh, to power ten years ago was to uh, ensure that the party, the Communist Party, to, was to restore its authority. There had been a lot of corruption scandals, and there was uh, you know, uh, and so there was a sense that the legitimacy and the authority of the party uh, as the dominant and uh, predominant element of Chinese life. And of Chinese politics, that that was somehow under, uh, you know, being undermined. And so part of what he did was these big anti-corruption drives. Uh, uh, some of the people who were caught up in the anti-corruption drives were his rivals and his enemies. But at the same time, quite a lot of people were corrupt as well. And so they were caught up. And there's no question but that the culture here among officials has changed in that people are terrified of accepting gifts now and all this. So, uh, so, so that was one of the things. And then, uh, you know, and, and essentially he wanted to kind of restore order. But the other big change was that the traditional policy from Deng Xiaoping onwards had been this sort of hide and bide idea, hide your strength and bide your time, and that uh, China shouldn't flaunt its power in the world. Whereas Xi Jinping has uh, taken a different approach. He's been much more assertive about Chinese power and also just about China's ambitions to be not just a very a prosperous and powerful country, but to be uh, to stand tall in the world. And uh, and so uh, and and it's quite clear that China wants to be the dominant uh, power in Asia, and perhaps to be more powerful elsewhere in the world. And so that has set up. Uh, what we have now, which is this kind of confrontation between China and the United States, and to a lesser extent between China and Europe, and uh, and so and that is a reflection of this. So, what uh, the confirmation of his um, of his leadership means is, first of all, this is the course that we continue on. It also means uh, what you've seen also is that he now has complete control over all of the levers of power. There are no factions. There had been factions within the Standing Committee of the Politburo before that. There are none of those now. So if you look at all of the levers of power, whether it's propaganda, state security, the military, anything, uh, his people are very much in command there. And uh, and so, uh, so, uh, so he is now an extremely, you know, even more powerful person than he was before. So obviously there's a process of action and reaction that goes on here, and there has been a backlash against China from the United States and other Western countries because of that more aggressive uh, posture, I suppose. I do wonder, there's a sort of chicken and egg going on here. Obviously we, you know, I look at this through the eyes of Western commentators most of the time, and they, they frame this in a certain way that the um, that, that the move to liberalise the Chinese economy was expected to be paralleled by a move to liberalise Chinese society, and that now that it's clear that that hasn't happened, that Western democracies need to need to adjust accordingly. I'm sure that's seen very differently in, in, in China, but it's been framed increasingly 
by Joe Biden, for example, as the start of what one might call a new Cold War between democracies on one side and authoritarian states on the other. That comparison, I think, is one that Xi Jinping has been very clear in trying to reject. Um, What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that viewed not just from China, but from other parts of the world as well, this idea that uh, the only virtuous path is to follow the path that we in the West are on, that uh, you know, that if China has a, a market liberalization, that that must or ought inevitably to lead to China imitating a kind of a Western liberal democracy uh, is, uh, is something which I think uh, does uh, seem arrogant uh, from, uh, you know, if, if you're looking, if you listen to it in China, other parts of Asia, or in Africa as well, uh, or, or indeed in Latin America. And I think also that when uh, the Chinese suggest that there's a kind of a hypocrisy about the Americans going around lecturing other people about aggression, uh, the fact is that China has not been engaged in a war since the 1970s. Uh, the United States has hardly been out of a war since the 1970s. And so, uh, you know, so, so I think, you, you know, they here would say who exactly is the aggressor around here. And so, uh, you know, so, so I think that, uh, you know, there's no question but that China and Xi Jinping have disappointed uh, people in the United States by not following the path that uh, that the United States would have wished it to follow. Uh, but, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, it's a question then of how do you deal with the fact that, you know, China has become, uh, you know, richer and more powerful than perhaps, uh, you know, the, uh, the the Western countries would like. And, and it's not just that it's powerful in itself. It is, you know, in Asia, it's the, uh, it is the, the absolutely overwhelmingly biggest trading partner for almost all its neighbors. It also supplies most of the things that matter to most of its neighbors. So its position of dominance in Asia is there already. It's just, you know, it's a fact. And it's going to be very hard for uh, the United States to dislodge it from that position short of a war. And a war between the United States and China uh, would be, uh, it could end up destroying the United, United States and China. And the war, that war if it were to come, and I have heard, you know, establishment commentators, particularly in the United States, you know, going through the numbers of, of, of what would be involved in a war. That war would would almost certainly arise over Taiwan, would it not? Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I think that, you know, I, I suppose, you know, if we think about it, just to go back for a moment uh, to the, the position of Taiwan, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the civil war between uh, the nationalists and the communists in China, uh, at the end of the 1940s, the nationalists retreated to the island of Formosa, uh, became Taiwan, and they then set up what they called the Republic of China, and that they maintained was the government of the whole of China. And the Chinese Communist Party said that their uh, country and Be- their government in Beijing was the government of the whole of China. And until the uh, until about just over 50 years ago, the United Nations uh, recognized. Taiwan, uh, the the government in Taiwan is the government of China, and then they switched and they expelled Taiwan, and uh, and so uh, China, uh, the government in Beijing is the is the only government recognised as being the government of China. The United States adopted that policy. Ireland adopted it. The European Union adopted. That's the remains the policy of the United Nations, the United States, and the European Union. Uh, but what happened then also was that uh, you know other things were added, so that 
the Americans, for example, said, yes, but we are also going to, uh, you know, uh, the people in Taiwan have a right to a kind of self-determination. Now, they never said uh, independence, but that nonetheless that, uh, you know, China shouldn't just go over there and, uh, you know, reunify the country, as it were, by force. And uh, and But nobody was particularly sympathetic to Taiwan for many years, really until about the early 90s when it started to become a liberal democracy. And since the sort of the mid to late 90s, it's actually had, you know, it's developed into a, a liberal democracy and in some ways a very attractive place from, uh, you know, from our point of view. It's very much like us. It's also, it's a very prosperous country as well. And so, uh, you know, so what you've seen over the last few years has been that, uh, you know, and particularly over the last, say, two or three years in the United States, that from the Chinese point of view, there seems to be a kind of a shifting of the goalposts. Uh, it was always very clear that no, uh, you know, no, no Taiwanese government was going to declare independence and that no Western power was going to encourage them to do so. And that was very clear as a red line. Uh, it sounded over the last while as if there was some sort of a shifting going on there. And then the other element that appears to have changed over the last few months was that there was a policy which was very successful on the American side of strategic ambiguity as to exactly what they would do if China were to invade Taiwan. And uh, so they would say that they would uh, you know, do all that was appropriate to uh, to help Taiwan. But they never actually said that they would actually come to its defense militarily. Now, Joe Biden four times over the last while uh, said that actually that is what they would do. And so that uh, you know, appeared again to sort of be something of a shifting of the goalposts. And I think what, uh, you know, I suppose the dangerous element of all of this rhetorical stuff, and there's a lot of it on Capitol Hill, it's become, you know, uh, China has become an issue over the last couple of years where there's tons and tons of resolutions on Capitol Hill. Now, most people in America don't really think about it or talk about it. But it's the biggest issue uh, in the, for the political classes. In that sense, it's a little bit like Israel, uh, which is something that most people in America don't think about, but it's a, it's a big deal on Capitol Hill. And so uh, so it's become uh, something that uh, people have become very hawkish about. But they sometimes maybe don't think through the consequences that actually, if you start saying we need to demonstrate to China by sending an aircraft carrier or by arming Taiwan. We need to show uh, some deterrence to demonstrate to China that they're playing with fire if they uh, start getting too aggressive or if they're thinking about invading Taiwan. The danger is that you start to create a self-fulfilling prophecy and that actually that you forget that by doing this, that maybe what you're doing is you're setting yourself up for a war with China. And do you actually want a war with China? And I think most people would say that it's not in the United States' interest certainly not in the European interest, to have uh, a war with China. So, so I think that, uh, you know, it's, you know, over the last few months, tensions have been rising. And so when Xi Jinping met Joe Biden in uh, Bali at the G20, before the meeting, there was a huge amount of tension and expectations were low. But when they met, it turned out that they were both ready, in a way, to turn a new page. And before we turn to the, the G20, that sort of sabre-rattling you hear in the United States, is there an equivalent sabre-rattling in China? Because certainly the, the voices of nationalism are much stronger in China now than they were even 10 years ago. 
Yes. Oh, there's no question but that. I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, just, you know, China has been building up its military. It has, uh, you know, there's certainly, and there's always been quite a lot of talk about reunification. I suppose the other thing that's changed in a big way is that uh, the Chinese line had been uh, that they would, you know, that unification would come by consent and that it was going to be uh, one country, two systems. That, of course, is what they said about Hong Kong after the British handover. And that was all fine for a while until the national security law came in. And now it doesn't look exactly like one country, two systems in uh, in Hong Kong. So the Taiwanese look at that and they say, well, if that's your idea of it, no, thank you. And so I think that, you know, so, so, you know, so certainly there has been, uh, you know, rhetoric has been uh, ramping up. Also military, you know, the Chinese military has been building up in response to uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in August. The Chinese uh, had these unprecedented military exercises, live fire exercises, where they encircled the island of Taiwan and they, uh, they shot missiles over the island and onto the other side. Now, this is something they'd never done before. And there are kind of certain norms and kind of understandings about where where the uh, People's Liberation Army goes and where it doesn't because nobody wants them any uh, misunderstandings. And uh, and so they did that. So there's certainly been a lot of that going on. Somebody here, uh, one of a Chinese intellectual said to me the other day when we were talking about uh, the COVID restrictions and the COVID system. And he said, well, of course, this is a very good system if it prepares us for another epidemic uh, if it comes up, but it also prepares us for any other kind of national emergency, like say over Taiwan. It shows that you can uh, mobilize the entire country right down to the neighborhood community uh, committee level. And uh, so there is a sense here, certainly, that uh, while China is not looking for uh, war and she, Xi Jinping continuously says that they want uh, to pursue this by peaceful means. They won't rule it out, and they're certainly doing everything that is necessary. They're putting all everything into place that would be necessary if there were to be a war. Stick with us. We're going to take a quick break and be back with Dennis after that. Dennis Stanton, we were talking just before the break about, rather to me, and I think to most people, alarming um harbingers of, of potential conflict in the future over Taiwan. I've certainly heard some American commentators describe it in terms of not if, but but when. But not everything's necessarily going in that direction, are they? And there are signs from the, the meeting between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden uh, before the G20 summit in, in, in Bali um, over the last few days that there might be a certain change of posture. Interesting that both leaders arrived at that meeting with positions of increased strength. Yes, I, th- I think that was important that they, uh, so Xi Jinping had just got his third term and Joe Biden was coming off these better than expected results in the midterm elections in the US. And I think what they did, uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security uh, advisor in the US, he said uh, before the meeting that they wanted to put a floor under the relationship. So just limit how bad it could get. And I think that's what they did. Uh, like the, the essential disputes remain the same. So, uh, you know, the US is concerned about uh, you know the 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 threat that uh, that China could invade Taiwan they uh, the US is concerned about uh, human rights uh, in Xinjiang and in Tibet and in Hong Kong and uh, the US is also concerned about what it would regard as China's unfair trade practices so that uh, you know in fact the trade practices are unfair because uh, Chinese 
companies, uh, your foreign companies, don't really have a level playing field when they're operating here in China. And at the same time, the uh, the Chinese are uh, fed up with the Americans over uh, what they see as American aggression uh, over uh, the um, uh, the issue of Taiwan, and also uh, the the uh, instrumentalization, as they would see it, of human rights. And uh, then, and they say that also that Chinese companies in the U.S. are being demonized. That say companies like TikTok, people are trying to uh, frighten everybody off using them. Uh, Huawei, all of these others, and that you know, so they also are facing unfair competition. And then the big issue, of course, that has. Um, been added to all of this is the issue of Ukraine, and that and that has also soured the relationship between China and the European Union because uh, China has been officially neutral, but uh, it's kind of been neutral on the Russian side. It's been uh, quite clear that although it hasn't breached any of the sanctions and it hasn't armed uh, Russia in any way, and I don't think that we have any reason to believe that China knew that uh, Putin was going to uh, uh, to invade when he did. Uh, nonetheless, it's clear that uh, it's not in China's interest that Putin should lose. And so they, uh, the Chinese have been uh, talking about having peace talks and promoting peace talks, and I'm sure they would like a peaceful resolution of it. But the Americans and the Europeans as well just feel as if China doesn't quite get it and understand just what a big deal this is for uh, Europeans and for, for the West. So, so that's kind of added to, to all of these tensions. And so all of those things are still there. Nothing really has changed since the meeting. But what has changed is that uh, they both really made statements. So Joe Biden went through this list of things where he said, we are not trying to change your system. We are completely committed to the one China policy. We do not support Taiwan independence. He went through this list, which was clearly what the Chinese demanded. And at the same time, uh, you know, uh, Xi Jinping also said that they wanted uh, cooperation, that they were, uh, you know, that they, uh, you know, that they wanted to be more open, and that they wanted, uh, you know, and that, and essentially, so they both really uh, said that they wanted to keep talking. And then uh, uh, Joe Biden said that uh, his Secretary of State uh, Tony Blinken will come to Beijing and continue this conversation. Now. One of the things that was interesting to me about all of this was that this happened a few days after uh, Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, came to Beijing. And before Scholz came to Beijing, there was an awful lot of howling and people complaining about the fact that he uh, was just like Angela Merkel and uh, you know they were about to make the same mistake that they made with the Russians and he was just being led by German industry. And the French were fed up because they felt that he should have waited and done it together with Macron. And, uh, and so... Uh, and the German commentariat, which is massively uh, full of Anglo-Saxon attitudes and hugely atlanticists, they were also piling on against him. But in fact, everything that he said and everything that he did when he came here was almost a precise prelude to what Joe Biden did. And so that visit now looks rather different. And so after uh, Xi Jinping met Biden, he met Macron, he met Mark Rutte, he met uh, Sanchez from Spain. Uh, so, uh, so I think that you know what you've seen from uh, Xi Jinping is that as soon as the Congress was over, he has gone out into the world where he hasn't been for the last few years. And at the same time, Biden, from this position of strength, as you mentioned, uh, he has decided to come and meet him. 
uh, and to continue to engage. And so it may be that, uh, and we should grasp these moments when they happen, that we're at a moment of good news, at least in one thing to do with uh, where the world is. And so that even if uh, these problems haven't been resolved, that perhaps there's a bit of a pause in the downward spiral. We're not all hurtling to our doom quite as fast. And that is quite heartening, although there is a big difference between making a bit nicer and actually addressing some of the underlying issues, some of which are very complex, aren't they? They're about technological innovation and bans on the sales of certain kind of, you know, semiconductors, which is a, which is a real, a key sharp issue between the United States and, and China. And then there's then there's Ukraine as well, which seems to me, and tell me if I'm wrong, seems to be as much symbolic as it is real. China has to, because of its position in the world, not be seen to row in beside the United States and and NATO on this. But uh, if I were Xi Jinping, I'd be a bit irritated with Vladimir Putin. He hasn't made his life any easier this year. No, but also don't forget that China was not the only country or not the only big country in the world that didn't support that UN resolution uh, denouncing the invasion. India didn't. South Africa didn't. Brazil didn't. Lots of countries didn't. And so, uh, you know, there is, uh, like, we're, so again, somebody here uh, said to me a couple of weeks ago, you would like us to react emotionally in the same way as you do to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We'd like you to think emotionally in the same way as we do about something like Xinjiang or uh, Taiwan. But also, I think people elsewhere in the world will say uh, there are a lot, you know, whatever you think about the, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and you and I agree that there's no question who the aggressor was. Uh, but that others would say, well, you know, there's a war in Yemen where uh, the Saudis, who are allies of this great Western Alliance of Enlightenment uh, are doing the atrocities. And uh, and we don't hear all that much about that. So I think that, you know, uh, I think the outrage about Ukraine uh, is higher in some parts of the world for obvious reasons, because it's closer than it is in some others. I suppose if you, you could absolutely take on board that charge of Western hypocrisy while also looking at, at the, the policy pursued by the Russians has been destabilizing, unsuccessful, uh, counterproductive, and not that helpful to China. Absolutely. Oh, no, I'm sure that there's, there's no question but that this is uh, the last thing that China needs. But, you know, having, uh, you know, but now it's happened. You know, what do they do about it? But, there, you know, just to go back to the, though your uh, initial question about these complex issues. First of all, I do think it does make a difference if you're talking, uh, you know, like Xi Jinping hasn't been meeting anyone for a number of years. That can't be a good thing. I mean, he hasn't been meeting any foreign leaders. So engagement, I think, has to be uh, better than not engaging. But in a way, the question, say, of the microchips, although they're technologically very complicated things, it's actually a pretty straightforward thing, which is to do with technological competition. And so what had been until now, uh, the general view, which was that the United States says, we're in a technological race with China. We want to run faster. Uh, what they're now saying is, and by the way, we also want to hobble the guy who's just behind us. And so that it's not just enough that we uh, should produce better chips than they do. We also want to just make sure they don't get their hands in any of them. Is that not great power politics in a nutshell? Yeah. All I'm saying is that's what they're doing, but it's, I'm not, I'm not passing judgment on it. What I'm saying is though that, you know, this, uh, so in a way though, for all the complexity of the, uh, of these things, these superconductors, uh, that the, you know, as you say, it's a kind of a straightforward, 
uh, you know, a question of competition. And so there is an economic and a technological competition, and uh, both sides are, are pretty determined. And I suppose finally, Dennis, if, if you wouldn't mind, I mean, underlying all those questions about economic competition, there's a... And I'm not sure if you get it on the ground there from the people you talk to. There's 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 a low hum going on about um, the state of the Chinese economy itself after this extraordinary economic miracle of the last of the last generation. That under underneath that miracle, the foundations may not be sound. There is questions about a a property bubble which may explode in people's faces, and there there are other issues as well. Is that something that people talk to you or talk to each other about there? Oh yes, I mean there's no question, but that uh, you know one of the difficulties that uh, China faces, and indeed that the Communist Party faces, is that uh, you know for years uh, it, the the place was growing so fast, everybody really uh, was getting more prosperous. You could be certain that your uh, kid's future was going to be better than your own. Uh, suddenly, uh, growth is slowing. And uh, all of these problems uh, are appearing. You've got a few that have exacerbated. Now, one is, uh, you know, you've got demographics. So they had a one-child policy, uh, which they kept going for too long. It had, it's, it may have made sense. It was wrong, but it may have made some kind of sense at the beginning. But one of the features of this uh, system here is that they find it very hard to stop doing something that they're doing that seems to have worked for a while. And so they kept that going too long. And as a result of that, there's a demographic squeeze going on and the demography is going wrong. So that's one problem. The second problem is uh, that you've got COVID and the COVID, the zero COVID restrictions have obviously dampened uh, the, uh, you know, they've dampened the economy worldwide. And if you're a big exporting nation, that matters, but it's also affected uh, affected things here. And then uh, you have this, uh, yeah, one of the reasons that you had this kind of property bubble is that, and again, it's a little, it reminds me a little bit of home. Uh, the thing is that in most advanced economies, uh, capitalist economies, you've got a number of different asset classes so that if you have money, there are lots of different things you can put it into. You can put it into the stock market, you can put it into bonds, you can put it into, you know, whereas here really the only one because uh, they didn't have a really proper stock exchange and various other things. The only really good thing to put it into was property, housing. So basically people, if they wanted to save money or make money, they basically put it into property and they would buy this stuff, buy to let, all of these things that were kind of familiar to us. And so then the bubble, the bubble, you know, and then again, something again, which is likewise familiar, that the local authorities, they, an awful lot of their tax revenue came from land sales and were, was all wrapped up in property. So everybody had an interest in all of this thing carrying on. But then uh, the thing was getting too much. And actually, the, uh, the Communist Party decided that they wanted to let some air out of this bubble. And of course, the problem with all of that is that it's very difficult to do it in such a way that it's entirely orderly. Uh, but one of the advantages that uh, you have if you, uh, you know, if you basically have a big state sector is that there's an awful lot of liquidity. And so they were uh, in a position to do what they've just done, which is now to take some measures to, uh, you know, to save these developers. What they had been doing was they were, they were kind of, you know, if there was a project being built that went bust, they'd save the project, but not the developer. Now they've decided, rather as we did ourselves, they're saving the developer as well. And they're, um, and so they're, uh, you know, so, so, so they're, they're kind of trying to work out how do you deflate a bubble in a way that does as, as little damage as possible. And it's a difficult act to pull off. 
I find those parallels with with Ireland absolutely absolutely fascinating. We might turn to the weekend at some time. As we know, it, it can only turn out well in the in the end. But Dennis, it's a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you, Hugh. Thanks also to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. We're going to be back very soon indeed. But until then, thanks very much for listening. 